When you look at good dystopian stories, they make use of an interesting technique. They describe a world that is truly crazy, bizarre, a world that looks upside down. The details, though, are not arbitrary. They pick up on trends from our present-day life and then they stretch them to their logical conclusions. They do this sometimes comically, sometimes more dramatically. In this upside-downness, we can recognize our own world if we look carefully enough. And we can be warned of things that could get worse if we don't keep vigilant. Such is precisely the world of Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury's masterpiece. In this world, you can get a ticket for driving too slowly, but not for driving too fast. People who go for a walk are regarded with suspicion. You are encouraged to stay home and watch TV instead, and wear your headphones all the time. Firemen don't put out fires. They start them. People call the TVs their family, but reading books is a criminal offense. Welcome to Philosophy Universe. I am your host, Alfredo, and this is episode 3, A World Turned Upside Down, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. An interesting thing about Ray Bradbury, who is acclaimed as one of the all-time masters of science fiction, is that he didn't really care about technology that much, not even about the science. I think, though, that this may be one of the reasons why Fahrenheit 451 aged particularly well. The book was written in 1951, but Bradbury kept the technology very simple. Cars are cars, flamethrowers are flamethrowers, and you can fill in the details with your imagination. Bradbury kind of invented the headphones. People in this future work with what he called ear thimbles, little cones that they wear in their ears, and they power music out constantly. 70 years later, we don't call them ear thimbles, or speakers, or even headphones, but pods, and it's much the same thing. Bradbury's stories are not about predicting future technologies, though, but about reflecting on social issues and philosophical problems that he saw emerging in his time. Many of these are rather enduring, as we will see. The story itself is fast-paced and straightforward and... Okay, let's get this out of the way. Spoiler, Spoiler alert. alert! Spoiler, Spoiler alert! alert. This episode contains major spoilers for Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 and for Victor Frankl's psychology bestseller, Man's Search for Meaning. Okay, as I was saying, the story itself is fast-paced and straightforward. There aren't many twists to give away. Still, if you want to read it on your own first, I strongly recommend that you do so. It's just three chapters long. Yeah, honestly... You can pause and go read the story. Anyways, the main character is a guy named Guy Montag, or maybe people pronounce it Guy. I'm going to call it Guy. Guy is a fireman. I'm going to call it Montag. Montag is a fireman, which in his not-too-distant future means someone whose job is to seek hidden caches of books and to burn them all. This is because the possession and reading of books are criminal offenses. There is no distinction, there is no selection, Books are books, and they must burn. Montag, though, has growing misgivings about his profession. He's actually been keeping some of these books for himself to see what they are about. He's just too afraid to open them. He's dealing with bigger issues still. 
he's aware of an overbearing unhappiness and misery pervading everything in his society, not just his life, but his wives, his neighbors, his society as a whole. He harbors some hope that maybe in those books that he's been hiding, he'll find some cure to this malady. Montag doesn't know how to get started, though. So he secretly contacts an old acquaintance, a retired teacher, and asks him for his help. The teacher then invents what may be the first podcast. How about that? He fits Montag with an earphone and reads to him while Montag travels and works. But his colleagues seem to be on to him. He receives a surprise visit from his superior, Captain Beatty. Now, Beatty is an interesting character. He's actually quite educated. You can tell that he's read a lot. He's constantly like quoting ironically books. And he's very much aware of the reasons why they are burning these books. A question that has barely crossed Montag's mind. In a fantastic monologue, Beatty spills the beans to Montag. He's hoping that Montag will do like he did. Take a short illegal excursion into books, get it out of his system, and get to see things his way. That books only make people unhappy, that thinking makes people unhappy, and therefore books that make people think make everybody in the society unhappy. So we as a society would be better off without any of those nasty things. So this is the ultimate reason books have been persecuted in this society. It is not about any particular idea, but about thinking itself, about asking deep questions. Do you remember last episode? We talk about Plato's cave and three meanings that we can focus on. One is, of course, the puppeteers. BT and some unmentioned others have taken upon themselves to keep people entertained, but without thinking. They have taken up the role of puppeteers. And they justify it by some altruistic reason. We are actually keeping people happy. But unlike the prisoner in Plato's cave, Montag is actually willing to put up a fight. He decides to hide the books instead of burning them. His wife Mildred, though, who has witnessed Montag's transformation from a law-abiding fireman to this person who is actually interested in books, is terrified, and she actually calls the firemen on him. Montag here has to make a stand, and he becomes a fugitive of the law. The chase scenes are particularly exciting because, again, anticipating the reality shows of the 2000s, Montag can see the whole chase in the TVs of the dozens of houses he's running past. And I'll stop here so I can leave a little for you to discover on your own, in case you haven't read the book yet. Now, there are two interesting pairs of opposing characters in this story that we can use to frame the discussion. There is, of course, the opposing philosophies of Captain Beatty, the puppeteer, and Professor Faber, the man that Montag recruits to help him learn about books. But earlier in the story, we find an equally important pair. On one corner, there is Mildred, Montag's disenchanted wife. And in the opposite corner, we find Clarice McLellan, a wonderful teenager that Montag meets on his way from work. This is actually one of the first scenes that we meet in the book. Montag is coming from his job, smelling of kerosene, and he finds this girl walking around the street, and uh, she starts asking him questions. And as she asks questions, Montag starts to discover more and more about his own unhappiness. Cleverly, in the first movie version of the novel, director François Truffaut had the same actress, Julie Christie, perform both roles. It is as if he were saying, you could be either one of these. Now, Mildred, Montag's wife, she's like really irritating. She's deeply unhappy and in constant denial. When we first meet her, 
She has just attempted suicide by swallowing pills, and Montag has to see how a pair of technicians come to his house, replace her poison blood with clean one, and live without asking a single question. It's just another working day for them. But when Montag tries to find out what was going through her head, she just refuses to discuss it. She denies that there's anything wrong, and she takes refuge in their TV room. The TV room is an important semi-character in this story. The TV room has wall-to-wall screens. Really, affluent families can install four of them for complete immersion. And the shows are absolutely brainless. What's the show about? Montag asks Mildred. Well, I already told you, there's these people called Bob and Ruth and Helen. And that is just it. People who talk about nothing. And every few lines, Mildred gets to read one of her own. And this is the family. Mildred apparently has learned to read lips because she hasn't taken off her pots, I mean her ear thimbles, in 10 years. What are we to make of Mildred? She's obviously a very unhappy person, but why? She doesn't seem to be depressed in a clinical sense. She's quite active, even chirpy, and she goes about through her daily routine half convinced that she's a happy person. She even advises Montag when he's in a particular bad mood. Come on, go, take the beetle. I always like to drive fast when I feel that way. You get it up around 95 and you feel wonderful. It's fun out in the country. You hit rabbits. Sometimes you hit dogs. Go, take the beetle. I know, it's horrible. I think it would be fair to say that Mildred's malady is of a philosophical nature. And here let me introduce you to a very important psychologist from the late 1900s. His name is Viktor Frankl. Maybe you have heard of him. Sometimes people read him in high school. He wrote a famous book called Man's Search for Meaning and developed a type of therapy based on the principles of the book. He called his system logotherapy. Frankl lived in Berlin just before the Second World War. He was concerned with a rise in suicide rates in youth. He attributed this to what he called existential vacuum, an absence of purpose and meaning in people's lives. He connected this to a rise, precisely, of philosophies that he would call nihilistic, we have to talk about nihilism at some point, but for now, nihil, N-I-H-I-L, is the Latin word for nothing. Nihilism is roughly a philosophy that states that life has no meaning, that nothing has any meaning at all, that we are just a random happenstance in the passing of the universe, and that is all. Viktor Frankl was Jewish and was sent to a concentration camp. There, he sadly had the chance to observe his theories in action. Those who lost their meaning, he says, they would quickly decline. They would get sick and die. It was those that had a purpose in life who would endure enormous hardship. Frankl himself did. Frankl's own meaning was publishing his book, which he tried to write in scraps every now and then. And he survived and published the book, again, Man's Search for Meaning. It's a very good read. Now, I don't want to oversimplify nihilism. Off the top of my head, I could tell you of at least four different types with very different attitudes. You have, for example, Nietzsche's tragic hero, who knows things are pointless but still carries on. There's the destructive nihilism, the joker who just wants to see the world burn. And that could be Mildred in her car trying to hit rabbits and dogs. We even get hints in the novel that hitting people with cars is a favorite youth pastime. So that's the destructive nihilism. There's the possibility of a suicidal nihilist. And here again we have Mildred. 
But turning things down a little, we can find the nihilist who regards life as so pointless that they only look for entertainment to take their minds off this fact that life is pointless. This is again Mildred most of the time. She cannot stay still and chat. She cannot talk about things. She needs to fill her eyes with images and her ears with noise. When that's not enough, she takes the beetle for a ride and goes on a rampage. But this is in fact Montag's entire society. We'll see later how Beatty explains it. But let's turn to the other character here that I mentioned, Clarice, Mildred's polar opposite. Like I said, Montag encounters her almost in the first page of the book. He's returning from one rough day at work, and here is this girl who point blank starts asking him all these weird questions, like, why do you do what you do? Are you happy doing that? What is your life like? And so on and so forth. It's uh, really awkward for him, but it also wakes up something, some kind of hunger for something deeper and more meaningful. It is to some extent what triggers Montag Rebellion. When Montag first meets Clarice on the street, it's almost like an apparition. In her face, says Bradbury, was a kind of gentle hunger that touched over everything with tireless curiosity. It was a look almost of pale surprise. The dark eyes were so fixed to the world that no move escaped them. Clarice likes to go out and smell things and look at things and sometimes stay up all night, walk in and watch the sunrise, which is absolutely countercultural in Montag's world. Speed is of the essence. Things need to become blurs. Sometimes, Clarice says, I think drivers don't know what grass is or flowers because they never see them slowly. A green blur, oh yes, that's grass. A pink blur? That's a rose garden. We need to talk about wonder. Great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle put wonder at the beginning of philosophy. Aristotle famously wrote, philosophers and poets both have this in common, that they both have to do with wonder. So Clarice is basically a teenage philosopher. It's hard to think of something more important than wonder to stay really alive. I don't know, love perhaps, but maybe love is a kind of wonder. Wonder is difficult to define. Maybe it's a sort of intellectual hunger, a desire to know that involves also our passions and feelings. It's easy to point it out and recognize it, though. Just look at any child under 7, and most children under 12, that time in life in which they don't think they know all the answers. They are interested in things with their entire body. Let them loose in a museum, and they'll run to the next dinosaur, to the next exhibit, while you run behind them and can barely catch your breath. Wonder is important, I would say essential, to philosophy for two reasons. The first one is positive. It is the drive to know things for its own sake. Not because we are paid or need to finish a project, but because things are there and they are interesting. Wonder makes you question deeper and deeper. Clarice, we learn, gets in trouble in school because she asks not how things are made, but why. And you can't have those people running around asking why questions. Secondly, wonder involves realizing that we don't have the answers to many things. It implies a humility, a vulnerability that one is not ashamed of. We stop asking questions, interesting questions, not just how to get to school, but why go to school and such, too early in life. And this may be either because we learn the answers by heart or because we're afraid we're going to look stupid or stand out if we ask those questions. Well, Wonder says to help with that and asks the questions anyway. We will dig a bit deeper, I promise, on this issue of wonder. Philosophy is a bit like a course crew. 
we take up the same topics many times, but every time we give them another twist so that we get to understand them better and better. Now, you may be thinking, if wonder is important for philosophers, is it important for anyone else, though? The answer here lies, again, in the comparison between Clarice and Mildred. For Clarice, every new day is like a feast of being. As long as Clarice can keep this wonder burning, she will never be lost like Mildred. She doesn't need the noise and the constant distractions to feel that she is alive, because she is really alive. Counter to this, Bradbury opposes Mildred. If you lose your wonder, this fascination for everything that is, this real interest in people and things and stuff, then you risk finding everything just meaningless. The result is this thing that Frankl calls existential vacuum, this complete boredom, this feeling that nothing really matters. And so nihilism and wonder seem to be in the opposite sides of the spectrum, philosophically speaking. One of them says nothing really matters, and the other says everything matters. The next question, of course, is how do we keep it alive? How do we keep wonder this way? How do we avoid losing it once we get older? How did Clarice avoid the traps that her classmates all fell into? I will sketch a very basic answer with just a couple of elements, but I invite you to post your own answers in the comments and continue with this discussion. I'm really interested in hearing what you think about how to keep wonder alive. Now, in the novel, we find that one of the answers to this is Clarice's family. Her parents and her uncle maintain wonder alive in their house. They speak until really late. Montag sometimes walks to their house and is tempted to just knock and be let in, and it's kind of sad that he doesn't. They do things out of fashion because they enjoy them, not because they are supposed to be doing them. This family, they don't really need their TVs. I like to compare it with making a coal fire. When you make a fire, if you put the coals together, they keep each other alive. But if you separate them, they languish and they give no heat. The second element here is humility. There's something about asking questions that makes us vulnerable, that makes us acknowledge that we don't have all the answers. And so once we start feeling bad about asking questions, I think that's probably where wonder starts to die. Anyway, we got into, I think, the heart of Fahrenheit. I think it's wonder against a way of life that actively neutralizes every attempt to bring wonder forth. But now, of course, the next question. Why is Montag's society framed in this way? And what does the book burning have to do with all of it? I hope you will join us to keep asking these questions in our next episode of Philosophy Universe. Thank you for listening. By the way, here's another interesting fact about Francois Truffaut's version of Fahrenheit. At the time of the credits, which comes at the beginning of the movie, they don't roll them, they shout them over a megaphone. This is, I think, a very clever irony. The makers of the movie don't want you to read anything at all. <laughs>